0: Hello, pod pals, and welcome back to Best Girl Grip. I am your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. Um, You can tell I'm rusty. I had to record that intro a few times because I'd forgotten the word pod pals. I was just going straight in with a very unfriendly hello. It feels like, yeah, a big chunk of time uh, that I've been away. may well be my longest break yet between seasons. Uh, I wish I could say that I was fully rejuvenated, but I am grateful to be here uh, with another lineup of wise, witty, and hardworking women for Best Girl Grip season six. So, to kick things off, I'm sharing a live edition that I recorded recently at Sundance London, an offshoot of the Sundance Film Festival that takes place every January in Utah, with the legend that is Tabitha Jackson, the outgoing director of the Sundance Film Festival. Tabitha was announced as the new festival director in January 2020, meaning that her first two festivals had to deal with the ramifications of COVID-19, as well as a reckoning around racial justice. Her appointment came off the back of 7 years as the director of the institute's documentary film program. Tabitha has over 20 years experience in the documentary and non-fiction field, having served as commissioning editor of arts at Channel 4 as well as the editor of More4, uh, where she oversaw two key areas of original programming in true stories and More4 arts. Of her commitment to the continuation of Sundance's values, Tabitha has said, By fiercely holding space for independent perspectives and media created outside the mainstream market, we as a community can spark new narratives, protect bold critiques of power, and deepen our understanding of what is possible. It has never been more essential. Our conversation kicked off the four-day industry programme and it was a really special moment not just to share a stage with someone who I have greatly admired for a while now and who brings such grace and courage and clarity to her work, but to do something like this in association with Sundance London. Sundance is a festival I have loved for well over a decade. Every year I comb the programme and make lists of all the things I want to watch when they get a UK release so it was a real privilege to get an insight into the ambitions and considerations behind that festival and that organisation via Tabitha. As ever I hope you get something from our conversation. This is episode 111 of Best Girl Grip. Tabitha, welcome. Thank you for being here. I'm very excited for our forthcoming conversation.
1: You are so lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Can we you. stop now? It's not going to get
0: any better <laughs> yeah, over than that. That's all. Um, so to begin with, I'd love to get a sense of when you first felt the gravitational pull of the film industry. You know, was there a defining moment in your mind where that happened or was it slower and more accumulative?
1: I think it was. And it wasn't the film industry that that pulled me. It was independent cinema. I think that's what it was. And it was, I moved to New York in 2003. And before that, I'd been working at, at the BBC for most of, my, most of my career and then a few years freelance. And I moved to New York because of the quality of the martini, essentially. And I went, it was a rainy afternoon, and I went to the IFC on Sixth Avenue and saw a film called Street Fight by Marshall Curry. And I, you know, it was a scrappy, powerful documentary about a political battle between Cory Booker and Sharp James uh, in New Jersey. It was so dramatic and compelling and rough around the edges. And I thought, this is, someone has made a film on their own terms, and I am getting to watch it in a cinema And it felt different to the experience that I had had in the UK where all my my life really had been spent in public service broadcasting, which I'm still fiercely committed to. But there was a – because broadcasting had historically financed the making of of television and to to some extent film – there wasn't as much need for, and therefore there wasn't as much entrepreneurial spirit by kind of the average filmmaker. Unlike in the US, where there really has never been much support for uh, for this kind of independent creativity, filmmakers have had to use philanthropy and go out and beg, borrow and steal, maybe not steal, but maybe probably sometimes stealing, to get their work made. So what I felt was this liberatory inspiration of seeing this work in in a cinema with other people on a Tuesday afternoon and thinking there is something qualitatively different about the freedom to make that work, which also goes with huge debt and sacrifice. But what you have at the end is something that you wished to make and a direct relationship with the audience. So that was a very long winded answer. But that was the moment when I thought, I want to be in, I want to know who's making this and how they made it happen and how it ended up in theatres. And after that, I got called back to Channel Four and I'd had my eye on the strand of feature documentaries called True Stories, which was uh, fantastic. It had been started by Peter Dale, and that was ultimately where I wanted to be. This is a a strand which took uh, both partly financed, sometimes fully financed, and acquired feature documentaries from all around the world, and it was just, it was the best fun ever.
0: Having seen Street Fight, did you feel the desire to make documentaries yourself or was the pull always kind of in favor of behind
1: the scenes kind of roles? It was the creative process. And so I did have a career as a, (laughs) laughingly called a career, as a documentary filmmaker for television. And I really enjoyed it, this sense that you could go out into the world and meet people, get paid to meet people and go to places and ask questions and be curious. And I loved that, but it, w- it wasn't like I felt I was a brilliant documentary filmmaker. But what, what I did really love was being around other people trying to make meaning and seeing how they did it. So the, the Channel 4 gig, which was a commissioning editor role, was fascinating and just absolutely confirmed that that's what I wanted to I wanted to be around filmmakers and artists and the, and the process
0: how did you inhabit that role? Like, what did you see
1: as your purpose? I faked it till I made it. <laughs> I mean, then my purpose was to was to learn. That was the purpose. It was being curious, and also to, you know, I was just just reading some old Sundance catalogs, and I think one of the reasons I was so surprised and honoured to be asked was because Sundance has been a beacon of kind of independent voice but this also went for Channel 4 and for Film 4 but it's kind of encapsulated by by this quote from from an old Sundance catalogue and it's Redford and he said what if the question how will your film make money were never asked then only two questions remain is this the story you want to tell and what is the best way to tell it and he says, what's ultimately at stake, the creative use of freedom in an open society is far too important to trust to economic or political forces or to the whims of fashion. There's something so deep in that. And there's also a recognition of the privilege of ever being able to ask the question, to ever not be able to ask the question, how will this film make money? Because that's what allows us to make, go on to make other work. But when you can put that aside and think, what am I wanting to say? Or what is the animating impulse of me embarking on this journey? That's, there's something just profoundly meaningful about that and how we are making, how we are grappling with our current realities and how we are trying to make sense of it. I really like the idea of being in a job to
0: learn and stay curious. And I'm wondering if you ever find your curiosity waning and if you do
1: what you do to remedy that. Sometimes I have felt okay. So I don't think my curiosity ever wanes, but sometimes, which I like, which is why I liked. There used to be at, at the old Channel Four kind of the commissioning editors used to have a turnover. I think it still happens in kind of Scandinavian um, film foundations that you do it for four or six years and then you then you need to go. I do worry that that it, about myself in these roles of seeing. Many, many, many documentaries and sometimes you think, oh my God, I've seen this one before and I know what's going to happen or, oh, it's this kind of film. When you start doing that, I think one should move on because it's a whole set of different audiences and and cynicism and weariness is is different from a curatorial eye. So I, I watch myself when I start feeling like, oh my God, not another competition doc or not another, you know, BioDoc. The the excitement, on the other hand, comes from when someone takes something that feels as though it's going to be familiar and then surprises you as a as a viewer. And surprise is an incredibly difficult thing to pull off with this world of work out there and and uh and what people refer to as content. It's just there's so much we feel like we've seen it all, and we're demanding a bigger hit of something no surprise me more shock me more anger me more but the curiosity never never wanes
0: that's a good segue to talk about some of the films that you exec produced with Film 4, which mm. definitely kind of pushed the boundaries of what nonfiction filmmaking can be. We're talking about the story of film, The Arbor, The Imposter, Bart Layton's film, um, and they kind of align with this idea and your interest, I think, in in expanding the parameters of what nonfiction is. Mm. And I'm wondering how those projects came to you. Did you seek them out and bring them to to Film 4? And and how did you go about developing them and making them surprising?
1: It was, the arbor was wonderfully already underway because it won an art angel commission. Uh, so when I took over, I inherited it, which was amazing to work with Tracy and, and with Clio, uh, of course, and, and what they were doing. And again, I just learned an enormous amount about what's possible. And there's a conventional wisdom, which, you know, they broke at every time, at every turn, but were incredibly rigorous in the arbor about Where truth resides, and I don't know how many of you have seen the arbit, but it it plays with form, but is rigorously ethical and endlessly inventive. And it's like, oh my God, I get to be along for the ride while people are doing this. With the imposter, Bart came in in and uh, was talking to me about, he was just telling me the story. And this is one of the, the things that I really learned as well, at the sniff of being... Pitched to rather than spoken to, my defences start to go up because I don't want to be sold something. What what for me works uh, work when I was in the commissioning editor role was someone just telling me something that's fascinating and me seeing the excitement in them about how how they might wish to express this creatively. But Bart with the imposter story, he was just he was just talking me through it, and I was like, and then what happened? And then what happened? And then what happened? It just got increasingly inventive and then he talked about how he might like to like to film it so that was that Sophie finds we did uh, the perverts guide to to ideology yeah and uh it was again just wonderful seeing how different people work and there is not one way uh, of doing things and then my last film was um and did a did a great film with carol oh my god i can't remember the title of the film no carol morley yes absolutely what was the film about the dreams of a life thank you so much that seeing how that story about a woman who had been found in her flat after dying and she was found she wasn't found until three years later three years later she was a vibrant woman in her 30s, which wasn't apparent from the headlines. So it could have made for a compelling, slightly grisly voyeuristic story of how did this woman die? And in fact, Carol was so steadfast in her her wanting it not to be that and wanting it instead to be how this woman lived and how can we know a person and how can all the recollections of friends and family do they add up to a picture of a person? You know, deeply, deeply meaningful and and descriptive and, and uh, you know, changed the way I see those headlines about people being found after, uh, after dying. That was so powerful. And then the last one was um, 20,000 Days on Earth with Ian and Jane involving Nick Cave in the creative retelling of his life through the construct of one day, his 20,000th day on earth. And so all of these films have added up to, um, you know, they came from conversations with people expressing how they're excited about a particular thing and then being along for the ride of of how they wanted to tell it. So it's, it's yeah, it's been, it's it was rich. It was rich. And it was also, I got kind of hooked on it because all of these people were, trying to grapple again grapple with the complexity of our lived experience and with art and what art can do about as Arthur Miller says getting closest to what is hidden and trying to find a new cinematic language not to find it because it was new but to find the right language for the complex things that they were trying to express so that's what's that's what gets me out of bed in the morning and
0: switching gears slightly, you joined Sundance in 2013 mm-hmm. as the director of the film programme. What precipitated that change? Why were you seeking those new pastures?
1: I wasn't. I wasn't. And I was really happy at Channel 4 and I, I was head of arts at that point and, and engaging in this in this kind of rich cultural life. Channel 4 was an incredibly social, friendly place. And when I joined Channel 4, it had the... Um, you know, that thing on the desk with the values, which is normally really boring in corporate. And these the channel four at that point, the, the strap line was, Do it first, make trouble inspire change. And it's like, oh, that's that's a good place to work. And that was during my time there, we did the alternatives Queen speech with President Ahmadinejad of Iran. And it was like, at Christmas, it was like But, you know, pushing again, pushing boundaries, sometimes failing, sometimes succeeding, um, had so much fun there. So I wasn't looking for a move. And then I was talking, I got a call from the executive director of the Sundance Institute, Kerry Putnam, who was trying to find a replacement for Cara Mertes, who, you know, ultimately had preceded me. And she just said, you know, what do you make of Sundance? What do you make of the documentary program? And because I obviously wasn't being interviewed, I told her. And then we had some more conversations. And then it, it, and then she said, you know. What did you tell her? What did you think were some of the things that could? Had- <sighs> to be honest, I said that I thought there was a lot of possibility because Sundance, Sundance is such a beacon of independent creativity that the... That What was happening in the u s at that time around nonfiction for, to me felt very focused on the conversation around social impact and which of course is a fantastically important, profound conversation, but the funding structures and the ability to get work made was beginning to be driven by how could you show that your single film was going to, the expression went, move the needle on a social issue. And there was lots of funding from foundations for doing that because that's their remit. And, you know, corporations were, were beginning to see the, the power of this. And so I went in and I was talking to Kerry about the, the also the necessity to see nonfiction filmmaking as an art form when it wanted to be, and an art form that could could be political and could lean towards justice and truth and beauty but it was also an art form and so and so I thought there was a possibility to to expand the range of work that was being supported.
0: And presumably it's out of this thinking that you developed the idea for the art of Nonfiction lab which if you don't know is this kind of lab for filmmakers that it's about not having desired outcomes they don't have to have produced a film at the end
1: of it is it more for kind of percolating ideas yeah it was a it was a fellowship born of a question which and the question was how can we best provide the creative conditions for making work for artists Sundance Institute which is founded in 1981 with the labs, has done amazing things. Filmmakers and screenwriters and theatre makers, dancers at one point, would go to Redford's land in the mountains of Utah and work together in creativity, community and in nature to do that vulnerable, messy act of trying to figure out how you say the thing you want to say and be inspired by other people that you're with. And it had been going on for, for many years. I was somewhat intimidated by what was already there and wanted to think about, to ask the question, okay, if that's already there, what isn't there? And so to do it with artists and say, you know, again, most of the funding and structures in the US at that point was around projects. So you get money for your project or you get support around your project. But actually the investment, the ROI on your investment, if you want to think of that. It's by investing in uh, in people, not in the projects, so that the people can make the work, can fail, can fail better, can go forward, from, can learn something amazing from what they've just done, and you are with them. So what does it mean to support a person rather than a project? And in order to do that, we needed to do it with artists, with filmmakers to find out. So the fellowship was just all about, we went to Marfa in Texas because it's weird and it we couldn't be complacent there because it was, we were kind of hyper vigilant because we didn't know what was going on and what was this strange place in Texas. And we talked about who people were and how that informed what they wanted to say and how they saw the world. And we gave them unrestricted money to see, not unrestricted amount of money, but it didn't have to be for the project. It needed to be for them and to understand what they did with it. And I learned so much from that, from the art of nonfiction. Uh, initiative including like there's a wonderful i probably shouldn't use names but there's a there's a wonderful filmmaker and i said you know we said to everybody how did you spend your money one of them put a budget line he had kids and a family and already felt guilty doing this independent work which was he 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 felt that he should be supporting his family but also knew that he needed to be making this work so he put a budget line in for two cappuccinos in the local coffee bar. That was a budget line. So he knew that from this money, he wasn't taking it out of his family money. And uh, what that bought him was two hours every morning to write a screenplay without feeling guilty about it, which he ultimately did. But that, Unlocking or liberating some of his creativity by removing some of the guilt about what he was doing was really important. And another, another one of the filmmakers, put money in to take his family to Disneyland. And again, because half of his brain was taken up by feeling, when I make my next project, I'm going to be away from my children and my family, and it's, it's, I don't feel good about that. And the next, he's not a commercial filmmaker at all, and the next project isn't going to make money, and this is bad. So he took his family to, to Disneyland and did the shoot at the same time. So his family was all around him and he said it just, it just freed up that part of his brain. So filmmakers, <laughs> filmmakers are whole people. And this kind of endeavor, which often doesn't feel responsible, it can feel irresponsible to be spending this much money or trying to find this much money to tell a single story to some other people. It's a beautiful thing, but he, there is so much else going on in life that is also part of being able to or not being able to do that. So I loved the I love the art of nonfiction. We had you know filmmakers like uh, Ramel Ross and Basam Tariq and Kali uh, Kalar and Sierra Pettengill and just a, a beautiful Natalia Almada Sam Green. Just a beautiful range of filmmakers, different levels of experience. Everybody had a totally different creative process totally different. So thinking about how as an organisation, we could support filmmakers as well as their work. It was really informative, really instructive.
0: Did you find coming from the UK a bit of a culture shock? Is the UK film industry very different from working in the kind of US
1: filmmaking landscape? It was a, the biggest culture shock was moving from London to Los Angeles. And, you know, the, the, the work itself, the creative process is the same messy individual beautiful thing and yes the industry is the industry is different and it's undergone such i mean it's always undergoing massive changes but it was undergoing and continues to undergo such seismic changes that it almost took the pressure off because like oh no one knows what's going on because it's because it's changing so rapidly the North Star for me is always going to be the makers and what they're trying to say and how they're trying to say it. And then coming into the festival, how does that work reach audiences and what what role can a festival play in a kind of... I I do firmly believe in the transformative potential of filmmakers with their work, transformative societally, culturally politically. And so what role can a festival play in supporting that?
0: You were speaking just now about championing the person rather than the project. And with the director of the festival role, I heard that you were a little bit reluctant or hesitant to put your name forward. So I'm wondering when that turn happened,
1: you know, how did you champion yourself in that moment? I didn't want to leave the creative process. So I was very reluctant and I could see what an incredible, I mean, Sun Arts is an incredible Festival, world class, and it's a complex. It's a complex organism, and as a non-profit institute and a non-profit festival, it requires an incredible balance of the work, the people, the values, the revenue, the sustainability, the safety, the transportation. And it's like, oh, I just want to do the nice, soft, squishy bit there. And so I didn't want to take on the festival. And I said no. And then I went and thought about it. thought the reason, if the reason I have spent the last almost 30 years in this game, it's because I believe in the cultural power of the work that that we all do. And the festival is one of the most incredibly potent cultural tools. And so how could I not... How could I not have a go at it?
0: And obviously, we referenced the first two festivals, kind of being uh, hemmed in by COVID nineteen. But I'm wondering if those limitations gave rise to kind of any new possibilities, different ways of doing things that you wouldn't have predicted doing.
1: Yes, and I actually wouldn't. I actually wouldn't use, although I. To, I mean, I obviously understand why you would, but I wouldn't use language of limitations and being hemmed in. I think we. I think what was the only way to get through that challenge was to think of it as a liberation to do anything that we wanted within the realms of of public uh, health safety. And to think of it, you know, if I like to think of Sundance as a place of imaginative possibility then, all right, let's put our money where my mouth was. And and what is the imaginative possibility when you have a pandemic and no one can come together? What is a festival? What is the essence and the core of it? And so in order not to totally freak myself out, I had to think of it as a series of experiments. We're going to try some stuff. No one is going to judge us badly if during a pandemic, the likes of which we've never experienced, we don't get everything right. So let's just try some stuff and see what happens. And that's, that was the only way to do it. It's a bit, a bit like making a film where you just, sometimes you can't contemplate the whole, just like, okay, just need to do this bit first and then see where it goes. What was one of the most personally rewarding experiments? A couple of things, I think. It felt like the essence of a festival. So we'd seen people had... We were lucky enough to not be the first people trying this. And so other festivals had figured out how to get, you know, how to be able to show films securely and had done what miracles in pivoting incredibly quickly and setting up screening platforms. So we knew that that could work. So what hadn't we? What hadn't been tried yet? And for me... And, you know, the people I was working with, this notion of presence and serendipity, and that's what you know, this ironically is my first in-person Sundance Festival as festival director, because our last two were so and I know I was just on the on the escalator behind people introducing themselves. Oh, what do you do? I'm a producer, what do you do? I'm a director. And it's like it just made my heart full because these serendipitous encounters They're not transactions. They're not pitches. You never know where they're going to lead. You're just encountering people as fellow creatives. It's so powerful. So how can you get that if you're not together in person? And so it became thinking about it as a gathering, not in a place, but at a moment in time. And so then it was about how do we create the serendipity? So things like Um, Shari Freelow, she's a senior programmer and also our chief curator of New Frontier, (laughs) literally imagined a spaceship, built a spaceship, a virtual spaceship. And people could come on board that in avatar and and proximity audio and webcam and encounter each other serendipitously and see someone across the room. So I didn't know you were coming. And what did you think of the film? That was magical. The partnership with other independent art houses uh, around US that we called Satellite Screen Partnership, where even though we couldn't go live, some of them could. And it was the work in communities being watched together by the communities. That was that was thrilling. And then the new people, the number of new people who got to attend the festival. Really powerful, really powerful.
0: I'm going to attempt to pull
1: together a few threads
0: here, so bear with me. But Good luck with that <laughs> one. Wow. You, you spoke just now about the, the power of imaginative thinking and, and that being kind of the crux of Sundance for you. And and coming into the role as festival director, having to deal with lots of logistics and, and trying to maybe keep hold of that squishy place. How do you kind of m- make sure that you can always access that squishy place and, and that you keep the power of your own imagination alive and not get bogged down by maybe the pressure of inhabiting a role such as the director of the Sundance Film Festival, which feels like a scary role.
1: This question is almost making me cry, but the answer is to look up. I mean, the first two years were just being strapped to Zoom, which is just a weird, weird existence. And not, there's very little external stimulus coming in. And being part of a festival or be, being part of life is about encountering unexpected sounds or ideas or smells, and it's like our, my sensory, like everybody's, but our sensory lives were just reduced so much. So look, look up, and get out was one of the things. But also, as has always been the case, if I'm talking to a filmmaker about an idea that excites them, it just, my whole week is improved. Like that can be the difference between a good day and a bad day. Someone having something they they want to say and conveying why they want to say it, why it's important and figuring out how to say it. That's it. It just always comes down to that.
0: I've heard you say in another podcast that you've always been compelled by the power of an independent voice. I'm wondering what, an independent cinematic voice looks like to you if, if you feel that that has evolved or your conception of it has evolved over time?
1: I think, and by the way, there's only one podcast and it's this, Pescal Grip. <laughs> Got that on record. <laughs> I think for us, and for me, an in independent voice is only this person could have made this film. Only this person. So when the great poet and writer Wendell Berry talked about, you know how the most famous, the best photographers, the greatest photographers, it wasn't simply about where they were taking a picture what they were taking a picture of, but where they were t- taking the picture from, where they stood. And that, for me, is what there are a million definitions of independence, but the that only that person could have made that film for me as an independent voice that there is something almost inherently oppositional in it. I mean, we say that. When you're telling a story, to use that word, it's probably either confirming the status quo or it's challenging it. And the independent voice tends to challenge it, either in form or in, you know, expression or in subject matter. So those two things, I think, can enable one to see the world differently as a viewer, but through a very, very specific perspective perspective. And what this field needs is a multiplicity of perspectives, because one specific perspective or a repetition or perpetuation of one specific perspective, it means the map isn't reflective of the territory. And that's what, particularly in nonfiction, this whole endeavour hinges on.
0: Before we wind down with a few questions that I ask every podcast guest, I'd love to know what you think a more inclusive connected sustainable independent filmmaking landscape looks like, and what you see Sundance or the festival at large what you see its role being in the
1: creation of that I do think what's interesting currently is the you know and we've been in the middle of it too this this the the pandemic happened the fight for not, and there's no simply about it, but not simply racial equity, but also socioeconomic inequality, this age of reckoning, an age of accountability. These things are now in the air and need to be reckoned with. And so there is a, a, a powerful and necessary and at times uncomfortable dialogue between for example, artists and institutions, filmmakers and institutions. What is the role of institutions? Again, like stories. Are institutions perpetuating the status quo or are they going to be part of a change towards something different? So I think all that messy stuff about representation, who's telling stories, what are the stories that are being told? Is it just stories? Do we have to have just stories or can we have poems and essays and musical forms in our cinema that needs to be reckoned with the the disparity in power which is always in play needs to be reckoned with in this moment who's got power who doesn't have power what does that mean for the culture if you if the power gets out of whack in this ecosystem you have a homogeneity of what becomes product and content And you cease to be able to understand the world and its complexity at a moment where we really have to. And it feels like we individually and as institutions are on the front lines of narrative change. And it's narrative that is informing culture and policy and how we respond to things and what rights we're losing. So there's all that side of it. And then there's a the question about sustainability of makers particularly in the independent field so I think what is going to be necessary to the future as well as institutions understanding what role they are playing and that it's going to be messy and that they have to be accountable for their own power the other thing is what makers can do and I'm I've been excited by the increase in filmmaker collectives, either affinity collectives, undocumented filmmakers, Asian American filmmakers. In 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 our case, I did a great uh, encounter, rich encounter with the real Black filmmakers collective in this country. Filmmaker collectives, because you to make independent work takes a lot of people. Independent filmmaking is all about interdependence, and you will find the people who have the same values and desires, or accountant, as you do, and work together. And that even thinking about Dogma, what year is it? Dogma ninety, Dogma ninety five. Uh, yeah, that creative movement in Denmark was born of wanting to keep creative control of their work, so needing to lowering their budgets. So all the stuff about not using music and using natural light is a way of keeping the budgets down so that they could retain creative control. That, understanding micro-budgets, understanding, assuming that there will be no money, how are you going to make your work? That feels to be a necessary, uh, a necessary step to take in this moment because, you know, just on the non-fiction side... It is wonderful that suddenly documentary and nonfiction is seen as oh it can be entertaining and it and it um, yes I'll go back week after week and watch that but there is homogeneity and a danger to anything that isn't a simple single narrative getting funded or supported that is putting and I say this and it is over dramatic but not that over dramatic. It's putting our cultural potency at risk. We just get a fed a diet of stuff and we're not provoked to um, think a different thought. Thank you for that answer.
0: Do you have something you consider to be the biggest learning curve of your career so far?
1: Yes. This, this two-year learning curve, being director of the festival during this pandemic and this time and all the messiness and complexity that comes with that vertical learning curve.
0: And finally, is there a film from a woman director that you consider to be a hidden gem that you feel like not enough people have seen or that you simply like to spotlight today?
1: No. <laughs> because there are so many extraordinary films by female directors. And even to think of it as a hidden gem or even to think of a particular spotlight, it's no, we, we um, at the festival... Love to think of our festival as a festival of discovery. Like, you go and just try something. And maybe try something that you think you won't like and watch it and try and understand why you thought you wouldn't like it and maybe why you don't like it. But just push it. Go and discover something else and go and discover something by a female director. Well, I feel like that's a hopeful note to end
0: on and hopefully a nice start to the four days here at Sundance London. Thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip and thank you again to Sundance London for having me. If you liked what you heard please do rate, review and subscribe, spread the good word etc. I'm on Instagram at Best Grip for pod related news, give us a follow over there. In the meantime have a great week, watch some films, drink some PIMS, take a nap, all that good stuff and I'll be back next Tuesday with a brand new episode.